We're studying through what uh, theologians and Bible students have called the minor prophets. There's 12 of them. They're called minor, not because they're insignificant or less significant than others, but they are called minor because their books are shorter than, uh, than others. But if anybody was to make the cut for a major prophet, Zechariah would have been right on the edge because <clears throat> his book is 14, uh, 14 chapters long, and it's a challenging book. I must confess to you that as I have read the Bible before, as, as many of you have, you know, I couldn't have told you what the book of Zechariah was about, and as I began to study it, I, I, I just had to kind of almost begin from the beginning again, and, um, and uh, so... And so I did. <laughs> and so this morning, I want to share with you some of the things that I've learned in my study and maybe help you in, in your understanding of the book of Zechariah. As I said, it's 14 chapters long. And uh, in the first section of the book contains eight visions that the prophet would receive on February 15th, 518 B.C. That's just two weeks from now. And uh, we'll mark the 2,536th anniversary of when Zechariah, that evening, had these eight visions that we're going to talk about this morning. Now, Zechariah was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai. If you were here last week, you remember that Haggai was a prophet who spoke to the Jews after they had returned from living 70 years in Babylon in exile as a punishment from God. And, uh, and Zechariah, he was a contemporary of Haggai, but he is most likely a much younger man. In fact, he's probably very young, even as God begins to use him, which this isn't in my notes, by the way, but let me tell you something, young people. God can use you. You don't have to be old to be used of God. And so you, some of you that are 13, 15, 17, 19, you know, God wants to use you. If you will let him and you will make yourself available to him, he will use you mightily. And Zechariah was evidently one of those, those young men. He was the grandson of the priest Edo. And he had returned to Babylon with that first return under, under the decree of Cyrus in 538 B.C. So he was most likely what we call a millennial today, probably somebody in his, in his 20s. Now, because of his family lineage, Zechariah was not just a prophet, but he was also a priest. He was in the priestly line, and so he would have been a priest as well as a prophet of God. Now, alongside the older prophet Haggai, Zechariah would be used of God to challenge the Jews to rebuild that temple. Now, again, if you were here last week, you know, we talked all about that, how they had, let the, they had started the temple, let it sit for like 16 years, weeds had grown up in it, they were building their own houses, going on with life, and basically had forgotten all about the temple. And so Haggai steps up and says, you know, you're not flourishing because you've got wrong priorities. Well, Zechariah is going to be a part of that. And the book breaks down into three parts, okay? So if you're taking notes, and I really want to encourage you to take notes, or, or better yet, I would encourage you to write in the flyleaf or the, the margins of your Bible. Now, that might seem counter something, you know, because the Bible is the Word of God. We value it and we treasure it. But the Word of God is the, the contents of the book, not necessarily the book that you have there. And so having a well-worn Bible that you study and you understand, and, and when you read it, you, you have cheat notes there to help you, that's a good thing. So I would encourage you, write in the flyleaves of your Bible, but the book of Zechariah breaks down into three parts. 
And again, so let me tell you my goal here as we begin. My goal in these minor prophets has been to teach you the book so that you understand what you're reading, so that you understand what the prophet was all about. That's been part of my goal. But, my, but the second part of my goal, is, 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 or the second goal I've had in teaching the minors has been to say, well, what about us? Does this have anything to do with us? And obviously, if God has included it in his book, then it, it has some importance for us. It has something that's germane for us. And so, you know, I, I, I kind of want to draw our attention to that as well. So the book breaks into three parts. The first part is eight visions, of, as I already mentioned, that Zechariah would get on one night, chapters one through six. The second part is four messages that were given on December 7th, 518 B.C., two years after the first part, and they are found in chapters seven and eight. And these four messages are in response to one question. Now, I'm not going to tell you the question. I'm hoping that, because we're not going to get to that today, and I'm hoping you'll read it by next week, chapter 7 and 8. It's very short. And, and maybe you can look for the question that Zechariah, or excuse me, that God is answering through the prophet Zechariah. So again, there's going to be one question, and he's going to answer it in, with four different messages, which are all basically just kind of adding and adding and adding to God's message in response to that question. All right, and then the third part is the final part of the book, and it's chapters 9 through 14, and, and this is probably written much later in Zechariah's life. He was probably a much older man. Uh, we know that because there's, there's very few time markers in here, but it mentions Greece in 913, and, and so chances are that this was written sometime around 480 B.C. Ezra is going to return 458 B.C. Uh, Nehemiah is going to come back in 444 BC, B.C. And so these last chapters are just preceding the return of Ezra the priest. And you remember, he comes back in a second journey from Babylon following the first return. And, and of course, the book of Ezra in your Bible is all about what God does through Ezra and that return. And, and so this last part is going to be towards a little bit later in, in, in Zechariah's life, but it's also going to be, I think, looking much, much further into the future. So we'll, we'll, talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Zechariah was an, a very important prophet. Now listen to me when I tell you why. He, he was an important prophet to Israel because he is just bringing encouragement to them. He is a prophet of encouragement. In fact, if you want to jot anything by the title, jot that down. A prophet of encouragement. His, the whole purpose of his book is to give encouragement. You know, I don't know if you've ever disciplined your children. By the way, if you haven't, you're disobedient to God. You need to discipline your children. I mean, we live in a culture today that somehow people think that disciplining their kids is not a good thing. That's just crazy, everyone. You need to discipline your children. That doesn't mean that you're mean or that, you know, there's balance in all things, but you need to discipline your children. But after you discipline your children, for those of you who do, you, you, you have to counter that with reassurance and, and love for your children. If you're not doing that, you're being disobedient to God. So, so you, you discipline your children and then you affirm them and you let them know that their worth and their personhood is not loved any less by you. It's the behavior that you want them to change. I say that because I believe that the book of Zechariah is that encouragement for a people that God has disciplined. In other words, he's disciplined them for 70 years while they've been in exile. Now they've been home. Now they're brought home, and they're still wondering, is God angry with us? Is, you know, is God still disciplining us? And, 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 and 
Zechariah is a book whereby God is saying to them, no, I love you. Discipline is over. We're in a new time now. And he's affirming them in this book. Zechariah's voice is one of affirmation. It's a statement of I've forgiven you. It's a statement of I love you, Israel and Jerusalem. So I'm going to divide this book, and, and I've, I've tried to preach every minor in one message. I haven't succeeded, but I, actually I was going to try to do Zechariah in two, but I just couldn't. So I'm going to divide the book by the way it breaks down. So we'll have three messages from the book of Zechariah. So if you're here this morning and you haven't read the book of Zechariah, maybe you didn't know what I was going to be doing this morning, you know, you have two weeks now to read the book of Zechariah. It's longer. It, it is longer than the other ones. It's 14 chapters long. It breaks into three parts. Keep that in mind. Next week, we're doing seven and eight. This week, we're doing one through six, all right? And again, in, in these six chapters, there are going to be eight visions. Now, Zacharias records this message in November, and, uh, and his message is the same as Haggai's of last week, okay? It's in the second year of Darius. It's at, it's at the same time as Haggai is, is preaching to them about rebuilding the temple. It's at the very same moment. And his message begins like this. God was angry with our forefathers. When he called them to repent, they didn't heed, and God judged them even as he said he would. So the first part of chapter 1 is Zechariah affirming what had happened, okay, and how they wouldn't listen. But then Zechariah says this, return to me that I may return to you. And that's a message for the people of Israel in Zechariah's day. Return to me that I may return to you. Now, I have a loved one that, um, that I talk pretty often to, um, you know, and we talk about all kinds of things, but almost invariably, if we're together any amount of time, this person that I love dearly always says to me something like this, boy, I should never have walked away from God when I was young. And by the way, it's, it's not who some of y'all think it is, all right? But he, this person says to me all the time, I should not have walked away from God when I was young. And he laments that. And I always say, I say, listen, all you have to do is turn. All you have to do is return from where you got off the path and begin to follow God. You can't recover years that are lost, but you can change the future. And all you have to do is return to the Lord. And, and this person always says to me, always, that's yeah, too late. It's too late. Two weeks ago, Dominion was putting in our power line out here. And, uh, and so I, I try to talk to the guys when I get a chance. And so one of the, the men and I took up a, a conversation. I began to ask him about, you know, hey, man, what's your relationship with God? And, and Cetra, we get to talking. And he starts telling me about how when he was a young man, he walked away from God. And he starts talking about how he really laments that and really wishes that he had never walked away from God as a young man. And I said, man, I've got some great news for you this morning. You can return to the Lord. I said, all you, and then I told him about this other person. And I said, all you've got to do is kind of backtrack, you know, where you got off the path, backtrack, and then begin to follow the Lord. And you can't recover those years that have gone by, but you can change the future. All you've got to do is come back. And he smiled at me and he said, ah, oh, it's too late. I said, it's not too late. He goes, oh, it's just too late. Zacharias speaks for God, and he says to them, and he says to me, and he says to you, return to me, return to me, and I will return to you. It is never too late. It's never too late. 
You know, as I was preparing for this, and even as I was practicing this morning, I was thinking, you know, I bet you there's going to be somebody sitting out there listening to me, and they're thinking, it's too late. It's too late for me. I've messed up. I've walked away from it. It's not too late. Let me give you some statistics. And really, this isn't about Zechariah. I'm just dealing with that one statement, return to me, and I'll return to you. Let me give you some statistics that we've, we've quoted before. And in our culture, did you know that statistically, there's an 86% chance that if you follow Jesus, you began to follow him by the time you were 14 years of age? Okay. So by the time you were 14, 86% of the time, I mean, 86% of the people who followed Jesus did so before they were 14 years of age. So here's what that means. That means if I pull you and you're 65 and you're following Jesus, there's an 86% chance you're going to tell me I began to follow him before I was 14 years of age. Uh, if we add another 10% to that, uh, it, it, we jump it up to 30, the age of 30. So what that means is that if you're 55 here this morning and you're following Jesus and I ask you, you know, when did you begin to follow Jesus? There's a 96% chance, statistically, that you're going to say, I began to follow Jesus before I was 30 years old. That means that if you began to follow Jesus after you were 30, there's only a 4% chance that that's going to happen. So, you know, you know, Chuck, I thought about you this morning. I mean, this week because I was preparing this. Because I know you began to follow Jesus after you were 30. You're part of, a, of only a 4% of the population that will begin to follow Jesus after, after they're 30. So I, I really want to challenge us uh, with this. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that, that if you're not following Jesus before you're 30, you, you've only got a 4% chance that somewhere between 30 and your death you're going to begin to follow him? Uh, you know, this is Jimmy's speculation, but I think it's this, because the older you get, the harder your heart becomes. Now, the reason why... Most of us began to follow Jesus when we were young is because our hearts were tender towards the Lord. Our hearts hadn't been hardened by sin and hardened by unbelief and hardened by just life itself. And so our hearts were tender towards the Lord. You know, in, uh, in Exodus, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. But then God in judgment hardened Pharaoh's heart. Listen to this, Psalm 50, 95, 8. Do not harden your heart as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. God's challenge in the psalm is don't harden your heart. Proverbs 28, 14. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Mark 3, 5. After looking around at the Pharisees with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, Jesus said this to them. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. And here's, here's my point. Return unto the Lord. He will return to you. So if you're like these two friends, the one from Dominion and the one that, that I have a closer relationship with, that are always saying, I can't return, I can't. Maybe you can't because you've hardened your heart for all these years. But if there's anything in you this morning that wants to return to the Lord, return to the Lord and he will return to you. I mean, prove the statistics wrong. Be the person who returns to the Lord that's in his 50s and has squandered his life and thinks it's too late. It is not too late. On that night, February 15th, Zechariah received eight consecutive visions. They're not very long. They're very short, okay? And, and each of them is sort of like a mini-movie, I think. 
And if not a mini-movie, they're sort of like just a picture that he sees. But each of these, I believe, is meant to be an encouragement to the people of Israel. Let me run through them. Let me run through them. The first one is the man among the myrtle trees. If you have your Bibles, it's Zechariah 1, 7 through 17. All right, you can mark that in some way. That's the first vision. And the meaning of this vision, God's going to interpret these visions. And, And the meaning is this. God is angry with the nations, okay? Though he used them in the past, he's angry with them. But he is blessing and restoring Israel. And in the vision... In the vision, Zechariah is going to see a man riding on a red horse, and it's standing amongst a grove of myrtle trees in a ravine, and behind this guy are some red, brown, and white horses. I'm assuming people are on them as well. And the angel of the Lord explains that these horses were sent throughout the earth and found the world at peace, at rest and at peace. Now, for 70 years, Israel's been in turmoil. They've been in exile. Now God is claiming and telling them, you're going to be at rest. You're going to be at peace. He's telling them, I am for you. So in verse 14 of Zechariah 1, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they added to the calamity. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So here's what God says in that first vision. Mercy is coming back to you guys. Your your villages and your your families, you're you're going to prosper. The temple is going to be rebuilt. Imagine these exiles and how they feel about that. Man, God is for us. The second vision is Zechariah 1, 18 through 21, very short. And in this vision, Zechariah sees four horns, and he sees four craftsmen working on on the horns. The interpretation of what he sees is this. God's judgment on the nations that afflicted Israel is coming. God is going to judge the nations that afflicted you. Now, in this vision, Zechariah sees the horns, the craftsmen, and then the angel interprets this and says, chapter 1, verse 18, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and cast out these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Do you remember the message of Habakkuk a few weeks ago? Habakkuk was the prophet who basically is lamenting how bad it is in Israel. And he says, Lord, how long are you going to tolerate this this evil in the land? And God says, you're not going to like what I'm about to say, but I'm about to deal with it. I'm going to use Babylon. And Habakkuk's like, whoa, whoa, how can you use them when they're more evil than us? And God says, because I'm going to judge them as well. And that's the second message. That's the second vision that he gets, that God is basically saying, I am about to judge the nations that have judged you guys and that that were used to discipline you. The third vision, a surveyor with a measuring line, Zechariah chapter 2, 1 through 12. And the meaning of this vision is that I'm about to bless you guys beyond anything you can imagine. I'm going to restore you. And in the vision, Zechariah sees a man measuring Jerusalem to find out how long it is. And and the angel came up and and told the angel talking to Zechariah, run, tell the young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. I will be its glory within. So this guy is measuring Jerusalem basically to build the walls. And the angel says, go tell that young man in the vision that I'm going to be the wall around Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's going to have so many people, it cannot be contained. 
Now, now I think this is a, an encouragement to them, right? It's an encouragement to them, but I think it's also a word to us. I think it's also a word looking to the day when, when the nations come in, you know, to God's kingdom and they understand the mystery of Christ. Now, in this vision, it goes on, and he says, tell everybody to flee Babylon. Now, remember, there's a bunch of Jews who stayed behind. Ezra's going to bring a team in a few, in a couple of, what, how many years is that, 20, 30 years? He's going to bring a team. He's going to bring a number of folks that are going to come back from Babylon. But, but there's the message, flee Babylon. Get out of there. Now, may, so many Jews stayed. Maybe Ezra fled because of this message. I don't know. But then God goes on to say in this same, in this same vision that, that Zechariah is seeing, he says in verse 10, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Again, I want you to just imagine how encouraging this is for those Jewish exiles who've returned home, who feel beat up, who feel like, I wonder if God's still judging us. And Zechariah says, man, I've got this great word for you. Sing for joy because of all the nations that are going to come and they're going to fill, fill Jerusalem. And he says, and I'm going to be present in your midst again. Now, I think in the short run, you know, Zechariah is proclaiming God's message that the temple is going to be rebuilt. Again, a lot of these things are pointing to the temple, as you'll see. But the temple is going to be rebuilt, and the temple, the center of first covenant worship, held the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies dwelt the very presence of God. So I think in part that, that Zechariah is, is promising them the rebuilding of the temple and God's presence in the Holy of Holies. But I have to tell you, I think these verses are looking beyond that. I think they're looking beyond to a day that, that you and I know when the Lord of glory walked in their midst in Jerusalem. He walked in their midst. His presence dwelt among them, and, and many nations will join them in that day. And of course, I think those many nations are us, by the way. I think it's us Gentiles who joined the people of God uh, through, the, through the work of Christ. Number four, the fourth vision is the cleansing and crowning of Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3. And the meaning of this one is Israel's sin has been cleansed and forgiven. I love this vision. This is a great one, I think. Joshua is the high priest. You remember we talked about him under Haggai last week. He's the, he's the main person in charge of, of religious ministry and, and approaching God, the, the temple and all of that. And, and so in this vision that I don't think Joshua's not there. This is a vision that Zechariah is seeing. What he sees is, is Joshua all dressed in dirty clothes, filthy clothes. And, uh, of course, that would, have been, that would have been terrible. You know, the, the, the high priest's garb was, was some of the most elaborate, you know, gold-laden. I mean, it was incredible. Here's this guy dressed in filthy rags. And, and so the angel comes in the vision and takes this garb off of him and puts these clean garbs, these purified garbs on him. Zechariah gets so caught up in the vision, he says, put a turban on his head too, right? And the angel obliges and takes the turban off and puts this new turban on Joshua's head. Now Joshua, as the high priest, represented the nation of Israel. You remember in the Day of Atonement, which we talked about, once a year, the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle that blood on the altar seat there in God's Holy of Holies. We saw that in the little video, all right? And so when he, Joshua did that, he was representing all of Israel. So there is a sense in which 
Joshua here is all of Israel. And, and what, we're, what we're seeing, what the message is, is that God is going to forgive and cleanse his people. He's going to give them a fresh start. He's going to wipe away their sin. And in the story, you know, I'm not going through the story. I'm just kind of telling it to you. I'm not reading it. But Satan appears in this vision. It's one of three times that he appears in the Old Testament. And, uh, and he's accusing Joshua. And by the way, his name, Satan, simply means accuser. And he is accusing Joshua. And the Lord rebukes him and he says, shut up. I have forgiven them. In fact, what God would go on and say, Israel is like a brand plucked from the fire. And he tells Satan to be quiet. Now, I want to tell you something that I learned this week that I did not know that you'll probably find interesting and maybe helpful. How did Satan get his name? I've always wondered that. Why do we call him Satan with a big S when the word simply means accuser? Well, here's how it happened. When they translated the Septuagint into Greek, they lifted up the Hebrew word for accuser, and they kept it in Hebrew when they translated into the Greek. And so his name became accuser. Did you follow that? So it says, when they're translating the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, into Greek, they didn't translate the word accuser from Hebrew. They lifted the word up and put it in the Greek Septuagint. So it became like a name for this accuser. I thought that was interesting. Y'all find it interesting? I thought that was really interesting. That's how Satan became known as accuser. That's his name because of what happened, what, we, what happened there. Now, in the last part of this vision, Zechariah says that he's going to bring forth his servant called the branch. If you have your Bibles, you can see it there, uh, probably verse 7 and verse 8. And obviously the branch there in this vision refers to the coming Messiah, to whom we all know to be Jesus. But here God says in verse 9, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. That day being, of course, the day that Jesus dies for us. And that one day he took away the sins of of the land, that word land can be earth, that, that word can be land, it can be like the land of Israel. In this case, I think a better translation will be, I will remove the iniquity of the world in one day because Christ died for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He took away the sins of the world. He was the branch. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, the world. You know, he is the good shepherd. He's the light of the world. He's not just the branch, but he's the vine. And Zechariah was pointing to him. Vision number five, the gold lampstand and the two olive trees. Zechariah, this is Zechariah chapter four. Meaning, here was the meaning of this vision that he saw. Remember, these are things he saw right in a row, eight of them all during that night in February, February 15th. Zerubbabel will complete the temple by the power of God. And in this vision, and again, whether I guess this is a, it's like a mini movie. Maybe this is just a picture, but he sees a lampstand with seven lights. And then he sees a bowl filled with olive oil that's, fill, that's feeding all the lamps. And then he sees two trees on either side, two olive trees on either side, who are filling the bowl so that the lights would continue. And so that's what he sees. And then the angel says, don't you get it? And he says, I don't get it. And so the angel says, well, let me explain it to you. Verse 6. This is what that vision meant. This is God's word to Zerubbabel. This was a vision specifically for Zerubbabel. Remember who he was. He's the governor, the descendant of David, who is leading in the return of the exiles. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain. 
And he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his, ha- and his hands will finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you for who has despised the day of small things. Remember, they, they were despising how small the temple was. But these seven, I guess he's referring to the seven lamps, will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord that range to and fro throughout the earth. Now, in this vision that Zacharias sees, the angel interprets it, and he basically says this. This is meant to be a picture for Zerubbabel. And here's what I want you to tell Zerubbabel. It won't be by your power. It won't be by your might. But it's going to be by what God does. The temple is going to be rebuilt. And the eyes of God are going to rejoice when Zerubbabel has the, um, has the measuring stick in his hand, and I guess the, the temple is being completed. And, um, and, the, and God is going to accomplish this. That's the point of this vision. Now, Zechariah twice asked, what are the two olive trees? The first time he gets ignored, but he asks it a second, a time, second time, and this time the angel says, these are God's two anointed. He doesn't tell us who the anointed are. I kind of believe they're talking about Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets who are continually admonishing the people, you know, with the work of the temple. You know, I, I think it could be that. Or it could be the two, the two anointeds are Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two guys that are leading the land at that time. It doesn't tell us. But the point of the vision, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, my temple will be rebuilt. God's going to bring it to pass. Number six, the flying scroll. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The meaning of this one is God will judge sin. And in this sixth vision, Zechariah sees a flying scroll. You know, it's a UFO, right? It's, fly, but he, it's not a UFO because he knows what it is, right? It's a, it's a U, uh, yeah, an identified flying scroll. It's an IFS, all right? So he sees this scroll flying over all the land, and it's open, and you can read it, both sides. Evidently, it's flipping over in his vision, and you can read it. And, and on one side, basically, God says, I'm going to judge liars. And on the other side, God is saying, I'm going to judge blasphemers. And so look at the verse 3 and 4 from chapter 5. This is the curse that is going out over the whole land. For according to what it says on one side, every thief will be banished. And according to what it says on the other side, everyone who swears falsely will be banished. And then jumping a little bit ahead, it says, It will enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it will remain in his house and destroy it. Now, here's what that vision meant. It meant that God is still, you know, God is for them. God loves them. God's going to restore them. God has forgiven them. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't expect holiness of them. He's still going to judge their sin. And in this vision, God is saying, I'm still going to deal with sinful people. Number seven, it's a woman in a basket, Zechariah 5 through 11. The meaning of this vision is that God is removing wickedness from the land. And in this vision, Zechariah sees an epaph, an FF, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but what that was was a basket, like a bushel basket. And, and he asked, what's the bushel basket? And, uh, and the angel says, well, that's the iniquity of God's people throughout the land, throughout Israel, verse 6. And then the lid is taken off, and there's a woman in the basket. And the woman personifies the evil. Not that women are evil, just the woman, you know, I guess evil was feminine. It's a woman in there. And so he puts the woman back in there, puts the top on it. Two other women come. They have wings, so I'm assuming they're they're some sort of angel. And in this vision, the two women pick up the basket and fly north with it. And when asked what it means, the angel says, you know, that God is taking that basket to the country of Babylon and is going to build a temple for it there. 
Here's what that, here's what that means, that the wickedness of Israel is being removed from the land. Their evil is being taken away and is being taken to Babylon where they're going to be judged. Earlier, God told them, get out of Babylon. Get out of Babylon. Don't stay there. But yet, Jews were still staying there. And now the final vision. The final vision is four chariots. Zechariah chapter 6, 1 through 8. Meaning, God is sovereign over all the earth. That's what the meaning of this vision is. In this vision, Zechariah sees four chariots coming out between two bronze mountains. I think the bronze mountains could symbolize God's heaven, but they come out of the bronze mountains from the presence of God. That's why I think it's probably talking about you know, God's, God's heaven. But they come from the presence of God in these four different chariots with different colored horses. They go in four different directions, north, south, east, and west. But their point is to cover the whole earth. And then God says, those going north, which would mean to Babylon, have pacified his spirit but his, and put his spirit to rest. Probably meaning that Jerusalem will not have any more trouble from the nations in the north, at least for, at least for a season. No more trouble from Persia, the Medes and the Persians. And, uh, and so that was, that was true. So God is saying to them, listen, God is patrolling the earth. It belongs to him. And God has sent this team to the north to deal with them. You are going to be at peace. And that ends, if you would, sort of the visions, these specific visions that uh, Zechariah has. But they all have one point. They're, they're all doing one thing. They're all trying to encourage Israel. I have forgiven you. You are my people. You, you, I, I am for you. I am for Jerusalem. I am for your land. You have returned. Your sin has been removed. The temple will be restored. My presence will return. Man, this was a good word. This is a good word. But it doesn't sort of end his time with the, with the angels and with the visions. He has a specific thing that God tells him to do. So look at the text with me, the last part of chapter 6. In this part, Zechariah is told that there have some men come from Babylon and they brought gold and silver. And he's to go to them and he's to tell them that the gold and silver that they brought from Babylon, that they are to fashion it into a crown and place it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. And then he tells them why. And he says, because this is going to be a picture of the branch who is to come. Remember the branch earlier that's coming, that in one day will remove the sins of all the land or all the world? Well, the branch we see here, it says in the text, if you're looking at the text, it says that the branch will also build the temple of the Lord. Let me start in verse 12, and you follow along. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tobiah, Jedediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So here we see that the Messiah who's coming, the branch. Am I boring you? Okay. <laughs> all right. Just check and make sure you're with me, all right? I found this stuff super exciting. I hope you do too. The branch, the Messiah who's coming, notice why he's called branch. Did you see it in the text? It tells us why. He's called the branch because from here he will spread out. 
And the nations are going to come, and he's going to build a temple. And that temple, his rule is going to be expanded, and he's going to build a temple. And, and many people from around the world are going to help him build this temple. Now, you know, some folks believe that Messiah, you know, will rebuild the one who's coming, the branch who came, which is Jesus, will rebuild this temple that they're building now that will be destroyed in 70 AD, that he's going to rebuild that someday in the future. Uh, and that this, this predictive word of Zechariah is pointing us to that day when Jesus will rebuild the temple and reinstitute the sacrificial system. Uh, you know, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right. What I think it's talking about is that the Lord Jesus is building his temple right now. And we are his temple. We are the people of God. We are the living stones. He is the chief cornerstone of this great temple. And notice this, the branch would receive honor and sit on the throne and rule. Indeed, the Lord Jesus is the branch who sits on the throne of David. He is our king. He is king forever. And not only is he king, but look at the text. He's also a priest. Do you see that? He's a king and he's a priest. And, and there's no conflict there because Jesus is both. Now, he's the only son of David who's been a priest. And he's not a priest according to the Aaronic, Aaron's line of priestliness. He's according to the line of Melchizedek, right? Who has no beginning, who has no end, but yet was a priest and a, and a king at the same time. And so Jesus is the branch who would be both the king and the priest for us all. Jesus is our king. And that crown that they made and they put on the head of Joshua, it was to stay in the temple and be a reminder to them of the branch who was coming. It was to point them to that time when he would come. So what does that mean for us? All right. So I've told you there's two things I've tried. I've tried to teach you the book, and hopefully I've given you a good understanding of chapters one through six. All right. But, but what, is, what is the point for us? Why, why is it included in there for us? And, and uh, you know, and so uh, I'm almost out of time. So let me just kind of wrap this up real quickly. So stay with me. Um, in... Uh, in telling us about the branch who was coming and pointing us to Jesus, and of course, we're, we're past the cross, so we look back and we see how Jesus was doing the things that Zechariah said he would do, and, and those people back then, I mean, it's, it's, in the, it's in the future for them, it's in the past for us, but it's in the future for them, so it's an encouragement to them, but for us, man, it, it is encouraging to know that Jesus is the branch whose kingdom spread throughout all the earth. Because all of us are loved by God, and God desires both Jews and Gentiles who have faith in him to be a part of his kingdom. I mean, all that's encouraging. But, but I want to give us a takeaway for us, okay? And, and, and you know, and I, there's probably lots and lots of things I could say, but I have one thing I want to say to end with. And, and I want to go back to the vision. I think it was number four. It was the one about the lampstand with the seven lights in the bowl, and the, it was that vision. And you remember in that vision, God says... Tell Zerubbabel this, the temple is going to be rebuilt, you're going to do it, but it's not going to be by power, and it's not going to be by might, but it's going to be by my spirit, says the Lord. I'm going to do it. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't use people. I mean, he definitely used people in that process. But here, here's what God is saying. I'm bringing this about. This is going to be my work. This is going to be the work of my spirit. I am accomplishing this. And, and so I, I, I thought, boy, that's such a good word for us. What is it that we can look to and say that not by power, not by might, not by anything man has to do, is, is, what is God 
going to do by his spirit. And again, there's lots and lots of things that I could point to, but maybe I'm on this kick, but this is the one that God told me to encourage you with this morning. And it is this, that one day, solely by his strength and solely by his power, he will raise our dead beings back to life. We will all die, and yet he will resurrect us, just like we sang over and over again this morning through the songs. He will resurrect us, not by our power, not by our might, not by anything. I mean, we will have no power. He, it'll be by his spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It'll be the work of God by his spirit. And when by his spirit and not by power and not by might, he raises us from the dead, he will glorify our mortal bodies. He will make our bodies eternal, immortal, incorruptible, and perfect. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Not all flesh is the same. There is one kind of flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. And there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is splendor of the sun, another of the moon, there is another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We're not all going to fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed in incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed in immortality. And when this corruptible body is clothed in incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed in immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. And you know, it's not going to be by your power, not by your might, but by his spirit that he will raise us from the dead. And one more thing. When he does raise us from the dead, we will all have a nature that is fixed, that's no longer sinful, that's no longer broken, we will be raised incorruptible, immortal to never sin again. Freedom, absolute freedom. I will, be, I will have freedom to make choices, but those choices will, you know, they will, not having a, they will not have a competing nature. I'll have one nature that will choose. I, I will be like my Savior, like my God, and I will sin no more. Adam's proclivity to sin will have been eradicated in my life. 
and in your life, and you will no longer struggle with sin. Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the lamp of the uh, light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his bondservants these things which would soon take place. You know, this morning I want to end by asking you to do something. And here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you, if you have never done so, to put your faith in Jesus. And I know I've been preaching to the choir this morning. I, I've, been, I've been helping teach those of you who follow Jesus to better understand his word. But, but still, I have an invitation to some of you who maybe are on the peripheries and have never really trusted Christ. I want to invite you today to let Jesus, as the video said, let Jesus atone for your sin. Let him be the ransom for your sin. Let him give to you by his spirit resurrection from the dead. Death doesn't have to be the end of you. You can live forever with him. So let's bow our heads for just a moment and uh, following Jesus and becoming a, a, a one who trusts in him is there's no ritual to it. There's simply faith. So in your heart, would you put your faith in Jesus this morning? If you have never done so, would you put your faith in Christ? Put your faith in Christ. Trust him. Trust him for your life. Trust him for your future. Just, you say, well, Jim, I don't know how to do that. Just in your heart, just say, ask him. Just say, Lord, save me. Save me. I trust in you. I put my faith in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. Just like Jonathan illustrated for us this morning, you know, dying to ourselves, we put our trust in him. Would you put your trust in Christ this morning? Once you put your trust in Jesus, the next thing is for you to make that public, to, for you to tell people, not to be ashamed of it, but to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Holy Spirit, just put something else in my heart. This morning I made a big deal about returning to him. Some of you have trusted Jesus, but you've walked away, and maybe today is the day you need to return to him. You know, maybe you're saying, oh, it's too late, Jim, it's too late. That's baloney, it's not too late. If you are willing, you can, turn, you can turn back to the one who says, return to me, I will return to you. Lord, hear the cries of hearts as only you can. Holy Spirit, would you help people that are maybe struggling? Maybe they're like, I can't go back. I'm, you know, I've failed too bad. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, even now, remind them that you love them, that Christ died for them, Lord, that they can return to you. And for those who have never put their faith in you, Lord, would you encourage them that this morning, right now, this moment, they can put their trust in you. And I ask this in your name. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.